Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The British national dish, fish and chips... <laughs> Right, <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually uh, has Arab uh, roots. Obviously, not the chips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hello, my name is Thomas Dinas, and this is the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Welcome back to another archaeogastronomical adventure. Today is part two of uh, our interview with Professor Newman, so sit tight and enjoy the latest episode of uh, the Delicious Legacy, all about the medieval Arab cuisine. So, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of... Um, Obviously, we have lots of um, recipes from that era, as you say. Uh, but uh, what are the notable uh, culinary inventions uh, and kitchen inventions at the time? What's something that is notable that we can say, wow, that's um, the first time or one of the first times that we've heard about what's, what's the inventions in the area? Well, it depends how far back uh, you go. Well, I, I guess one of the things that, that springs to mind is the, the, the cooking method. And so uh, the fact that they had different types of ovens, uh, mm -hmm. that's perhaps something that's a little bit unusual. Uh, although if you think about it, once again, we also have different types of ovens. The difference is that they are put in one in one oven and we use technology to, yeah. uh, to um, change the settings, if you will. And so... The, the, the two ovens they had still exist today, and they go back to uh, Mesopotamian uh, times. The first one is the famous uh, tanur, yeah. which, which today is known as a tandoor, because obviously it's, it's now associated with India, but it, it is profoundly uh, a Near Eastern thing. And the, the, the tanur is uh, essentially a, a clay oven. It's a clay oven which is shaped like a beehive. You can still see them uh, today. Uh, the average one would be about a, a meter high, and it has a hole at the top and a hole at the bottom. And so a fire is kindled at the bottom. And then what the uh, tanur is most associated with, of course, is bread. 
Yeah. And so uh, after, let us imagine that we are in, in, in the period and we are the cooks <laughs> and we have to cook some, we have to bake some bread. So we would uh, start with our dough. So very simple, of course, you know, water, flour, salt. And we would then shape it into round loaves, uh, unleavened. So there's mm -hmm. no yeast or anything. And then once the oven has reached its temperature, which would be relatively quickly, actually, we would then stick those loaves, those flat loaves, circular loaves, along the walls of the, the tanur. Yeah. And so it's both heat and convection that then uh, bakes uh, the bread. When it's ready, you, you take it out. Tanur was a very interesting and is a very interesting invention because it was uh, it was really multi-purpose. So, you know, bread on the one hand, which is how it's still used today, of course. Um, and then also uh, they would heat up things. And so there were a number of possibilities. It, you could put a pot on top uh, and so use it like that. But also it was used to uh, stew very slowly certain dishes. So imagine we're still the chefs, we've finished our, our uh, baking, and so the, the, um, the oven is still hot, but it's not hot enough for, for the baking, so we're, we're not kindling the fire. Yeah. But we put the, um, the, a few of these oven dishes, which are known as tanuriyat, uh, in reference to the tanur, yeah, uh, we put those in at the bottom and leave them uh, probably overnight, and then they mm -hmm. would be ready the following morning. So this really slow cooking of stews, and you can imagine the the, the how the flavors would have all been uh, intermingled in in those dishes. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. This slow cooking is the best, actually, and uh, yeah, I think even nowadays, I mean, if we cook something really slow. The flavor improves the next day, so so I think they were definitely <laughs> masters of that uh, method of cooking. Yes, yes, indeed. And then the other oven was um, a, a brick oven, which is more like the the oven that that we can all imagine. Uh, so that one has the um, just a flat surface and 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 a covering. Mm -hmm. Which was used also for for bread, but for many other things uh, as well. And so usually they would light a fire on on one side of the oven, and so rather today we simply you know turn the oven down. They would actually simply move the uh, the, the pots around, yeah. move it closer or farther away from, from the fire, and thus regulate the temperature. Um, one very interesting thing about, uh, about the tanur, which is really a wonderful invention, is that even things like kebabs, yeah. they would make it in, in the, the tanur. Now, we can assume that the kebab is probably one of the earliest <laughs> cooking methods of meat. You can imagine soldiers by the campfire, they've cut up some meat, they put it on their sword and they, they kind of turn it over, over of the course. open flame. Yeah. 
But actually, uh, if you want to have good kebabs, that's not the best way, as we now know, of course, because, uh, you know, as anybody knows who's been to people who don't uh, uh, barbecue properly, <laughs> yeah. uh, present company excluded, of course, <laughs> um, you, you end up with scorched, scorched meat and, and a raw center. So they would actually use um, the tanur, for cooking kebabs. So they would skewer the meat and then put the skewers inside the, the tanur, uh, thus ensuring, of course, this all-round cooking of, yeah. of the meat. Well, this is all uh, brilliant and exciting and um, really fascinating. So what, um, yeah, from that era, basically, what um, cookbooks do we have? What kind of um, authors? Do you have any names, basically? Do, do you have any people who we know that uh, their names and that they did some um, recipes or some cookbooks for 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 the kings or you know that's that's an excellent uh, question we have a, a total of 10 cookery books and it was during my research for the the um, sultan's feast that i uh, identified a, a new cookbook one that hadn't yet been discussed brilliant prior to that the, it was nine now actually When it comes to authorship, uh, things are not very clear. Firstly, before I, I go on to authorship, uh, as I've already said, so the cookery books cover a period of half a millennium, so yeah. from the 10th to the 15th centuries. And uh, we have sources from across uh, the Muslim uh, world. So uh, from Muslim Spain, Al-Andalus, all the way to, to Iraq. Mm. The 13th century was a particularly fertile one. That's when most of the, the books, or the, at least where we, that's the, the largest proportion of, of cookery books that have come down to us. Yeah. So authorship. Well, there are indeed names that are mentioned. About half of them actually are anonymous, which is not that surprising if you think about it. Because um, they weren't considered high literature, and uh, cookery books, of course, uh, would also be used in, let's say, less than ideal circumstances for preservation. Uh, just as today we have recipe books in our kitchens, and yeah. and of course, you know, that's not a good way to preserve them for for posterity. Yeah. At the same time, of course, it's important to mention that. It was a culture that set great store by gastronomic uh, culture. And so we have, for instance, one cookery book um, that um, where an Ottoman sultan commissioned a, a beautifully uh, done uh, copy. So it, it, was, it was considered very important. Some cookery books, for instance, were copied multiple times, so with several uh, manuscript versions that, that mm. exist. But so the names uh, of uh, the, uh, the authors, when they're known, it's not even always sure what their involvement in the cookery book was. And we mm -hmm. can start already with the one that is considered to be the oldest, which is attributed to a man called El-Warraq. Yeah, I've and, heard of him. Yes. And uh, El-Warraq is essentially, it, it's, his name is already interesting. Uh, El-Warraq essentially means the bookseller. 
um, and so um, we can immediately wonder whether he is the author or the compiler. I personally don't like to talk about authorship, but rather compilership, mm. uh, because in many cases, the uh, compilers also borrowed extensively from one another and from other sources. And so we find a, a, a number of, of overlaps. Who are these authors? Well, in addition to the, the, the ones that have been preserved, over 40 um, are known through references in the literature, but have, uh, to date, not surfaced. Yeah. So um, it's, it's difficult to say, but uh, we can imagine that there must have been you know, close to, well, over 50, 55, maybe 60 in, in total, if we add everything up. And if you look at the, the list of authors that is given in, in the uh, sources, it's, it's very interesting. You find uh, rulers, several caliphs who uh, apparently wrote a cookery book. Uh, there's uh, physicians, there's geographers, there's poets. Uh, it's all manner of individuals that plied this craft of mm. the cookery book. Absolutely. And so some of them refer to the fact that they tried certain dishes. Some of them uh, say, well, in this book, you know, these are dishes that I've invented. But in most cases, one can imagine that there was a, a kind of pool of recipes that they drew from. And of course, it, the, the fact that we have this long period of time is very interesting because it allows us to get a snapshot of changing palates in the region. And right. what is striking, actually, is that some dishes disappear, but on the whole, the, the palate, so the, the tastes that, that people appreciate it, on the whole, that is pretty stable. Mm. And what happens then, so it stops in the 15th century for, for various reasons. The main reason, of course, being that in the East, there is a new empire that's about to sweep everything away, the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And also, this meant that the patrons of these cooks, the grand banquets and so on, the courts, the, the, the elite that provided these banquets and needed these fancy dishes, uh, that, that situation, that landscape changed. So that's the first thing. The thing that's really interesting is that on the one hand, in contemporary Middle Eastern cooking, as you pointed out, you know, there are, there are uh, very few things that uh, are the same. On the other hand, there are many things that uh, a medieval diner would have recognized. So the, uh, just two very brief examples. The, the, the thing that I enjoy most about the medieval Arab culinary tradition are the stews, the fruit stews and so on. Yeah. Um, and those have, have virtually uh, disappeared. I say virtually. They, they, there's very few uh, countries where they have those kinds of, of stews. Mm. In Iran, however, they're still very, uh, very popular. Uh, so if you like, Iranian cuisine is probably closer to the medieval uh, Arab cuisine than Arab cuisine is today. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the, other, the other side of, of the story is that there are many dishes 
that are still around. And for instance, I just I already mentioned the the kebabs, for instance. Yeah, yeah, that's still around. Uh, other particularly sweets, uh, things like katayef uh, and zulabiya and kunafa and so on. They they they're still around. And so there, there are, there's a core, if you will, that that has endured. But of course, a truly interesting thing that the Holy Grail in uh, Arab food history is to to find out because in between the 15th and 19th centuries, there are no cookery books. At least none have come to light. And right. so, in the 19th century, the cookery books are written in Arabic. Once again, cookery books for the elite, but this elite, of course, is now westernized. Mm. And so you, you have dishes that the Egyptian ruler would have had in Paris when he visited. And of course, he wants to reproduce them when he receives his grand European guests. So it's yeah. a different, a different, uh, a different uh, kind <laughs> of animal entirely. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. In terms of uh, stews, so the fruit stews, mm -hmm. do you have a, a recipe that is indicative of, uh, of of that kind of stew? Like uh, what meat and what fruit, what and what spices would... Yeah, there, there are many. There's a, there's a pomegranate stew, for instance. Mm -hmm. Pomegranate stew, which is a, true, a wonderful dish, which I mentioned the Persian or the Iranian connection. Yeah. Uh, in Iran, there's an Iranian dish called fosinjan. Yeah, uh, which is which is very close to the pomegranate uh, stew. But uh, yeah, it has chicken, I think, and yeah, yes, pomegranate and walnuts. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's it's also made with with duck, the uh, fasenjan. Uh, right, but but chicken, of course, as well. The other, so you have uh, they they were great fans of uh, things that were that we would consider you know, sour and and bitter. So so there's lemon stews. For instance, uh, vinegar is is also often used, mm. and so this is clearly something that that appealed to their palate. Although I have to say that when we say vinegar, I think it's important not to assume that they're that it's the vinegar that we have in in our pantry today. Mm -hmm. And so they used wine vinegar, but they also probably used other kinds of vinegar. And there's one cookery book that provides a little insight into that. It's one of the Andalusian cookery books, or rather by an Andalusian emigre who moves, who essentially moves after the Castilian forces uh, conquered his, his home region. And he, yeah. he skips across the Straits of Gibraltar, goes into Morocco, and then eventually ends up in, in Tunis. And he has a number of very interesting vinegar recipes, mint vinegar, grape vinegar, lime vinegar. So possibly when they say vinegar, the, again, what I said earlier about the chefs knowing which vinegar to use, I think that they would have used different kinds of vinegar for different types of, of dishes because they were so sophisticated. It's, yeah. it's such a sophisticated cuisine, you know, and the visual was so important. Um, they would color the dishes. They would shape dishes into uh, into molds, into different shapes. So I think the use of of even core ingredients, we, we mm. have to be very careful that we don't oversimplify. I see. Hold up. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbean Creek. UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Be it wine, herbs, cheeses or olive oil from all over the wild corners of Greece and working directly with small artisan producers. If you want to try some um, amazing traditional meats from Greece, preserved meats, why don't you get some Bavourakis organic smoked ciglino from Malbin Greek? So this is preserved um, and smoked um, pork in olive oil and they follow a traditional Cretan recipe for it, which is really old. And uh, the meat is smoked using olive wood, and it's flavored with pepper and cumin. So this is kind of this is a kind of meat, uh, and the kind of preservation techniques that go a long, long way to the past. And um, yeah, uh, it has some relation to our episode today. Or you can try the organic uh, Cretan sausages with cumin and vinegar again. Another old Cretan recipe with uh, roots to the Byzantine um, Empire. Whatever you need, Malbin Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the exquisite goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art 17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SE16 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malbin Greek, the one stop shop for your Greek fix. And. <laughs> Of course, for all you dear listeners, Malbin Greek has an amazing discount of 15% of your next purchase. So go online, go to the website and type malbiangreek.com forward slash delicious and you get 15% discount at the checkout. 
Yeah, the other thing that I obviously I've read a lot about is about the the pickles. So you yeah, the, the, as you said, the the sour and the vinegary uh, element, like a lot of stuff to make you hungry, to tickle the appetites, and yeah. uh, you know, yeah. make make you salivate, make yeah. you ready to eat more. Actually, <laughs> and yeah, I, I find uh, a lot of the pickles quite interesting um, from from the period as well. Yeah, one of the interesting things is um, we have this uh, connection with uh, fish and uh, vinegar dishes and um, that go from, from uh, like Mesopotamia mm-hmm. uh, to Spain and then these uh, fish vinegary dishes that travel all the way to New World and mm-hmm. then we have uh, <laughs> yeah. the dishes coming back from the New World to Europe. And it, it just it, and all goes back to, <laughs> to medieval Mesopotamia, Arab cuisine, and yeah, yeah. so forth. And I, I think that's really amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the the connection you've just outlined. I mean, that of course brings to mind the uh, sigbage that I mentioned way at the beginning, the vinegar stew, which uh, resulted in the escabeche in in Spain. And then, of course, we have in the new world, we have the ceviche. Now, of course, yeah. they're, they're not identical, but the idea of the, as you say, vinegar, uh, fish, and so on. And incidentally, sigbage uh, was also often eaten cold. Mm, there you go. Yeah, so th- th- there's a link. Although one of my favorite uh, links uh, has to be that, and, and there is some resistance, I have to say, but uh, I, I'm a firm believer that um, the British national dish, fish and chips, <laughs> right, <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually uh, has Arab uh, roots. Obviously not the chips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But the fish, but but the fish, the fried fish, because the the the, the fried fish. As I say, the, I'm I, I'm perhaps at risk of of, uh, of blaspheming in the eyes of some people, but but if we go back to the the fried fish, which essentially was imported, popularized in this country by Jewish uh, immigrants, mm. and and it can be traced back actually to uh, inhabitants of the Iberian peninsula. Yeah. And so it's not really that big of a leap of the imagination mm. to say, okay, and, and actually uh, in one of the cookery books, there is a recipe for fried fish, uh, which I've recreated. And it is essentially, it's again, it, it doesn't use the, the, the kind of batter that we use now, but it is very clearly and identifiably a relative of the present day. Uh, fish mm. or, or fish preparation as it occurs yeah. in, in fish and chips. So, yeah, there you have it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which reminds me, um, I think I saw on your Instagram once you, you had a recipe about a fish, like one piece of fish, one whole fish, but cooked three different ways. Yes, yes. Well, that's uh, talk about the unusual uh, techniques uh, yeah. that that they used. Yes, the fish cook three ways. That I mean, there, there are. Uh, that's a, a very wowable example. <laughs> yeah. But okay, so this is this is how. So it's it's cooking fish one fish in three different ways simultaneously. That's that's the the principle. Yeah. The head is roasted. <laughs> the center is poached and the tail is fried but but you know there's there's more to it mm-hmm. uh, so uh, they also stuffed the fish 
with a, a filling of fish. That's another fun thing. You know, they were such pranksters. They would <laughs> they would stuff a chicken with chicken or stuff <laughs> stuff a rabbit with rabbit. Uh, <laughs> And then sometimes they would hollow out an animal and then make a filling with its meat and that of another animal and stuff it back in and, and reconstruct it. Uh, wonderful, right. <laughs> wonderful. But but let's return to our, our fish uh, cooked three ways. So there's a stuffing of, of fish and also e eggs and, and, of course, spices. You know, the, the more it, it, this is not a less is more cuisine. More mm -hmm. is more. <laughs> more is more. More is more. <laughs> more, is more. Um, so we have uh, all kinds of wonderful flavors going on there. So we have spikenard, slightly bitter. We've got mm. cloves, we've got ginger, cumin, coriander, uh, of course. And then also uh, some citron leaves, apple peel that are also added. Uh, and so what they did, so um, you put the uh, on an oven dish. And so, so there's a, a, a thick cloth which is soaked in water. That's yeah. wrapped around the center of the fish of course. to poach yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. The lower part is bandaged also, but that one, of course, is soaked in oil, mm -hmm. thus frying it. <laughs> and uh, so when you when you take it out, it has very distinct flavors. And of course, you're also supposed to have different sauces for each part of the fish, mm. uh, which are also for which there are, of course, also uh, recipes. But this uh, uh, fish cooked three ways has a bit of a sting in the tail. Sorry, pun intended. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> in its fried tail, there's a sting. <laughs> in that, incredibly, a very similar recipe is found in a famous French cookery manual from the 15th century, the so-called Vivandier, uh, which also has this fish cooked in different ways simultaneously. Right. Okay. What is the connection? I don't know. But it is interesting nonetheless. And, and of course, I'm tempted to say that uh, at some point, uh, this recipe traveled up north and somebody decided to to recreate this this uh, this visual extravaganza. Yeah, I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. When is the recipe that you're mentioning, the Arab recipe? Uh, what what century is it from? That's from uh, El Warak's uh, book. Okay, so that's so, the one for the 10th century. Yeah, so it's so a very old one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it's about four or five hundred years difference. Yeah, yeah, correct. The French correct. Clearly they copied. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite thing to cook? That's uh, a tricky one. Uh, okay. Uh, perhaps um, what's my favorite one to eat is... <laughs> what, what's your favorite one to eat? <laughs> um, to eat one that uh, I have a, 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 a soft spot for is a, a wonderful dish, um, which unfortunately is one of those that has disappeared. Mm -hmm. And it's called a judaba. Right. Originally a Persian dish. And it's, a, it's one of the um, dishes that was made in the, in the tanur wasn't made yeah. in the brick oven, but in the tanur. And the principle is very simple. It's what we, in English we call a uh, drip pudding. 
Mm. And so imagine the following. You have a pan. They use a special pan. That was another thing. The um, uh, kitchenware was just astounding. They had all manner of sophisticated things. They had graters, different types of knives and so on and so forth. But so here they have a special pan. And in that pan, you have flatbreads. And in between, so you layer fat breads, and in between them, you have fruit. My favorite is banana. Incidentally, right. bananas used very, very rarely in the, uh, in the recipes. But anyway. So, but they but, were used. So uh, they, they, yeah. Wow, okay. Uh, but so you can use you can use uh, any fruit really uh, whatever you like you can I guess would work great with apple too, mm. um, and so you layer it and then there's a layer of uh, so alternating layers of fruit and and uh, flatbread. Yeah. Meanwhile, so this goes in the tanur and then uh, above it there is a chicken that is roasting and so mm. the juices of the chicken then essentially also uh, drop into this what becomes a bread pudding. Yeah. And so you serve the the bread pudding, if you like, with the chicken, which pieces of chicken on top. And the interesting thing is that, I, and I know this this may appear to be a, a problem for, for uh, uh, those of us who don't eat meat, uh, you would imagine a sweet, so a bread pudding with fruit and then meat. Actually, the bread pudding does not uh, have a meaty flavor at all. Right. It's it's a very, very interesting dish and, and truly delicious. Other than that, I also am very, very partial to, you mentioned it, the pomegranate stews, pomegranate chicken. Mm. And the third kind of group of, of dishes is with mustard. They had some very nice mustard dishes that chicken with mustard, for instance, with mustard sauce, which I also think is 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 quite delicious. T to tell you the truth, there have been uh, very few, if any, real disasters. Um, there's there's only one really that comes to mind that was inedible. Yeah, and and that was uh, how to describe this. I, I think the best way to describe it is think of a baklava with meat. Yeah. Right, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it it uh, it tastes as revolting as it sounds. So, but but other than that, they they've all really, and as you've pointed out already, they they knew what they were doing. They were such proficient and competent cooks. Everything comes together, and even where you think, oh my goodness, these flavors that won't work. Uh, once you taste it, it just all comes together. And it is quite, I think, quite the achievement that after so many centuries, people today can, can still in, enjoy uh, what the, the chefs, uh, chefs created. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, uh, I want to ask you about that 10th book you said we didn't know about and you found out. Which one was that? I, I finished the uh, edition, so the transcription of the, the manuscript and, and the translation. Um, so this is a, 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 an interesting one. There's, it's once again an anonymous one, so there's, there's no authorship. Yeah. And uh, there's also no date. Uh, it's part of a collection that also has some medical uh, text in the volume, and mm -hmm. it has uh, very interesting features. The main interesting feature is that the recipes are those of the oldest tradition. Because you remember I mentioned that as time went on, certain dishes were no longer cooked, or at least 
were no longer included in the recipe books. Yeah. Um, here, the recipes have more in common with the earliest tradition, say, El Warak, than they do with the later tradition, say, the Sultan's mm. Feast, to take those at kind of opposite ends of the of the spectrum. Yeah. So that, that would mean that um, this is a very early text. The other interesting thing about it is that it contains a lot of medical information, uh, which also brings it closer to the El Warak tradition, if you will, uh, mm. which, of course, also uh, contains information, dietary information, so on, about ingredients, recipes, and so on. So that's another another piece of circumstantial evidence to place it at the, the very uh, beginning. The third and final highly interesting aspect of, of the work is yeah. that the manuscript copy in question was clearly produced in the Muslim West because the, the, the script is the North African script. Right. And so, as I said, there's no indication as to when the copy was produced or by whom, but it again supports this uh, exchange and movement of dishes, ingredients uh, across the entire uh, Mediterranean. Mm. Um, but so that's, that's a, a very, very exciting, very exciting uh, project. And um, you don't mind telling us, how did you find that out? By accident. Uh, Those are great things. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So, but by by accident, by going through the the, the manuscript, and of course, often the description was merely of foodstuffs, so ingredients, categories mm. of foodstuffs, which often means that it's just pharmacological information. Yeah, there may be references to dishes, but but uh, like there are references to dishes in the work of of Ibn Sina, you know, Avicenna, and so on, but but no real recipes. And so as I went through the manuscript, I found that the bigger part, the bulk of it, uh, is our recipes, uh. food recipes, uh, just like those of the other uh, uh, cookery books. Yeah. And of course, that wasn't translated and you're doing the translation now or you yes. finished? Great. Yes. And this is something that's going to be published in some place yes uh, i'm i'm uh, uh, hoping that that will be uh, published uh, early next year yeah brilliant uh, for the general public or is it going to be like academic uh, work um well it's it's also going to be a, a bilingual arabic english edition mm -hmm. but oh, brilliant. Um, i i i hope that it's something that will will uh, be interesting for, for, for everybody, to, to be honest. Mm, fantastic. I'm looking forward to it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, right, uh, what can I say? I mean, <laughs> that was uh, fantastic. I can have you here all night and talk about uh, medieval Arab cuisine, but I think you probably have other things to do. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. Thank you so much for joining uh, on the podcast. And if you want people, if people want to follow you on uh, Instagram, for example, yes, uh, absolutely. That's uh, medieval uh, Arab cooking. Great. And anything else? Um, uh, the blog is uh, eatlikeasultan.com. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I hope uh, we'll keep in touch and um, talk soon. Okay. No, thank you. It was a, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure, Thomas. And uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully, uh, one day I'll get an invite to, to one of your... <laughs> one of your... <laughs> one of your... <laughs> Uh, My barbecues. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have a lovely evening and a brilliant Easter weekend and talk to you soon. Okay. Same to you, Thomas. Same to you. It was, uh, it was great fun. Thank you for having me and, uh, and, and all the best and, and hope we, we meet in the, in the not too distant future. Indeed. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, once again, for listening to the Delicious Legacy Podcast. I love to hear your thoughts and responses, so please head over on Twitter and tell me what you think. You can follow the podcast at The Delicious Legacy, all one word. Or join me on Patreon, where you can put The Delicious Legacy again, one word. And that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash The Delicious Legacy. Or Google Patreon and The Delicious Legacy Podcast. This podcast can only keep going with the generous support of our subscribers on Patreon. You guys keep me running, you help me cover my costs, and allow me to dedicate more time researching each episode. I want to thank all of my subscribers for helping so far to create this series. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider going to Patreon and type the Delicious Legacy Podcast and contribute something and keep this podcast running. Thanks for listening. All the best. Over and out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 